Good morning. I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. If you'd like to read the Church Bible, we're on page 274. We're reading 2 Samuel 15, the whole thing. It's lengthy and there'll probably be some mispronunciations. I'm Georgie. All right, let's get started. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot, horses and 50 men to run before him. He would get up early and stand beside the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone had a grievance to bring before the king for settlement, Absalom called out to him and asked, What city are you from? If he replied, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel, Absalom said to him, Look, your claims are good and right, but the king does not have anyone to listen to you. He added, If only someone would appoint me judge in the land. Then anyone who had a grievance or dispute could come to me and I would make sure he received justice. When a person approached to pay homage to him, Absalom reached out his hand, took hold of him and kissed him. Absalom did this to all the Israelites who came to the king for a settlement. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. When four years had passed, Absalom said to the king, "'Please let me go to Hebron to fulfil a vow I made to the Lord.' For your servant made a vow when I lived in Geshur of Aram, saying, If the Lord really brings me back to Jerusalem, I will worship the Lord in Hebron. Go in peace, said the king to him. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom went, sent agents throughout the tribes of Israel with this message. When you hear the sound of the ram's horn, you are to say to Absalom, You are to say, Absalom has become king of in Hebron. Two hundred men from Jerusalem went with Absalom. They had been invited and were going innocently, for they did not know the whole situation. While he was offering the sacrifices, Absalom sent for David's advisor, Ahithophel, the Gilonite, from his city in Gilo. For the conspiracy grew strong and the people supporting Absalom continued to increase. Then an informer came to David and reported, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all the servants with him in Jerusalem, Get up, we have to flee or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly or he will take, us, take over us quickly, heap disaster on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The king's servant said to the king, Whatever my lord the king decides, we are your servants. Then the king set out, and his entire household followed him, but he left behind ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out, and all the people followed him. They stopped at the last house while all his servants marched past him. Then all the Cherethites and Pelethites... And the people of Gath, 600 men who came with him from there, marched past the king. The king said to Ithai of Gath, Why are you also going with us? Go back and stay with the new king, since you are both a foreigner and an exile from your homeland. Besides, you only arrived yesterday. Should I make you wander around with us today while I go wherever I can? Go back and take your brothers with you. May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness. But in response, Itai vowed to the king, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord is king, 
Whether it means life or death, your servant will be there. March on, David replied to Ittai. So Ittai of Gath marched past with all his men and the dependents who were with, who were with him. Everyone in the countryside was weeping loudly while all the people were marching out of the city. As the king was crossing the Kidron Valley, all the people were marching past on the road that leads to the wilderness. Zadok was also there and all the Levites with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set the Ark of God down and Abathar offered sacrifices until the people had finished marching past. Then the king instructed Zadok, return the Ark of God to the city. If I find favour with the Lord, he will bring me back and allow me to see both it and its dwelling place. However, if he should say, I do not delight in you, then here I am. He can do with me whatever he pleases, whatever pleases him. The Lord also said to the priest Zadok, look, sorry, the king also said to the priest Zadok, look, return to the city in peace and your two sons with you, your Arimaz and Abathar's son Jonathan. Remember, I'll wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes to you from, until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abathar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and stayed there. David was climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he ascended. His head was covered and he was walking barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they ascended. Then someone reported to David, Ahithophel is coming with is among the conspirators with Absalom. Lord, David pleaded, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. When David came to the summit where he used to worship God, Hushai the archite was there to meet with him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go away with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city, tell Absalom, I will be your servant, your majesty. Previously, I was your father's servant, but now I will be your servant. Then you can counteract Ahithophel's counsel for me. Won't the priests, Zadok and Abathar, be there with you? Report everything you hear from the palace to the priests, Zadok and Abathar. Take note, their two sons are there with them, Zadok's son, Ahimaaz, and Abathar's son, Jonathan. Send them to me. Send them to tell me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's personal advisor, entered Jerusalem just as Absalom was entering the city. <laughs> Good morning, friends. My name is Chris. I have the privilege of opening up to Samuel chapter 15, and I also will epically mispronounce people's names this morning. So let's all do it together, shall we? Um, I want to start by asking you, what security measures do you have to guard your home? Doors, locks, or insurance? Now, don't worry, you've locked the front door before coming to church, so don't have that in the back of your mind this morning. But I vividly remember a night in January 2005 when I had to rely on the security of my front door for my own safety. 
It was the Cronulla riots and I was living in Cronulla. I was taking the bins out before going to bed and suddenly 30 to 40 cars with armed young men drove down the main street of Cronulla. One car spotted me and they quickly pulled over. Five guys got out of their cars with baseball bats and started coming towards me. So I dropped the bin, turned around, ran into my apartment, locked the steel front, um, front gate, closed the door, deadbolted it. I even used that silly little chain thing that really doesn't do anything at all. And on that dark night, I was grateful for the security I had in place to guard me and my home. I sat there as five guys tried to break down my front door with baseball bats. I want to ask you today, what kind of security do you have to guard your heart? You see, in the Bible, the heart represents the core of our being. It's the source of our identity. It's the engine room of our motives. It defines who we are and what we do, which is why Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart above all else, for it is the source of life. We live in a world that lies to us, that deceives us, that tempts our heart. We live in a culture that teaches us that the truth of our heart is more important than God's truth. So friends, what security measures do you have to protect your heart until Jesus returns? I ask this question because in our Bible reading, we witness a contrast between the slow, deliberate theft of the hearts of God's people and King David, who on his darkest day, guards his heart and continues to trust God. We see it in verse 25. Have a look with me. Verse 25, David says, If I find favour with the Lord, he will bring me back and allow me to see both it and its dwelling place. However, if he should say, I do not delight in you, then here I am. He, that's God, he can do with me whatever pleases him. Friends, the good news is that on David's darkest day, he remembers that God stands by his word and God stands by his king. And this wakes him up so that David can act like a king again, so that his heart may be secure in the promises of God and he can continue to live for the glory of God. So that question again, what kind of security do you have to guard your hearts. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, give us your spirit of wisdom and your spirit of truth so that we may understand your word this morning, not to make us smarter sinners, but so that we may walk more closely with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we're in 2 Samuel. Uh, the books of 2 Samuel demonstrate a key movement within God's salvation plan. God transitions from uh, his people living under the leadership of judges to leadership under a king. And for us, David's kingdom is a prototype kingdom. We've seen this before already. As we read about David's kingdom, it teaches us 
about what God's kingdom is like and how we should live in God's kingdom today. And just recently, in the last two weeks, we've seen that it's a kingdom that is shaped by promises. So two weeks ago, we saw in 2 Samuel 7, it should come up on the screen, that God promises that David's kingdom will be a kingdom that lasts forever and that David's kingdom will be in, uh, sorry, David's throne will be established forever. But last week we saw David fall from grace. And so in 2 Samuel 12, we see that God gives David another promise, that the sword will never leave his house because he despised God, took the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and he also murdered Uriah. As we come to 2 Samuel 15, David has sinned. He's repented of his sin, and that sin has been put away. But God promises that there will be consequences to that sin, and the sword will never leave his house. And so these two promises really come to a head in chapter 15, as we see David on his darkest day. And this is our first point. Today, We've kind of parachuted down into chapter 15 and we're introduced to Absalom, the prince. This is David's son. Chapter 14 describes David as being incredibly handsome, like Fabio. He's flawless. He has huge hair. Think Jeff Westcott before he got his hair cut a couple of years ago, right? But unlike Jeff, Absalom is deeply wicked. He has killed his brother. He's manipulated his father to get back into a kingdom. And this all comes to a climax today because Absalom attempts to steal the throne. If you've got your Bibles open in front of you, chapter 15, what, how does he do it? Well, verse 1, he arrives in Jerusalem with chariots, horses and men. Verse 2, he positions himself at the city gates to settle disputes and presents himself as a judge who can deliver justice. Have a look at verse 3. Absalom said to him, look, your claims are good and right, but the king doesn't have anyone to listen to you. He added, oh, if only someone would appoint me judge in the land, then anyone who had a grievance or a dispute could come to me and I would make sure he received justice. Can you see what Absalom is doing? In one of the greatest political PR campaigns, pains of the ancient world, Absalom looks, acts and speaks like a king and he does this for four whole years. Then he sends his messengers to all the tribes of Israel, that's, remember that, that's, that's the northern kingdom, that's Israel, not Judah, all the tribes of Israel to declare that Absalom is the king. Jump down to verse 13, verse 13, then an informer came to David and reported, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David's darkest day is when it appears that God has given up on him as king and he has failed to keep his promises to David. David's darkest day is when Absalom steals the heart of the people and enthrones himself as king. And Absalom does it through a lie and a temptation. Did you see that in verse 3 and 4? He affirms the truth of the people, telling them what they want to hear. He lies to them, saying there is no king. 
and he tempts them, saying, if someone appoints me as judge, I would make sure they receive justice. You see, Absalom gives people a shortcut to justice and an alternative king. And in this way, his words are an embodiment of Satan. Didn't Satan use the same tactics in the Garden of Eden? Remember, Satan was cunning and deceptive. He lied. He said, no, you will not certainly die if you eat this fruit. He tempted, saying, if you eat this, you will be like God. He planted doubts in the minds and offered them a shortcut to wisdom and knowledge. And by distorting the truth, Satan affirmed their desires. So in your mind, picture a lion. 1 Peter 5 says that the devil is a prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to manipulate and devour. And as Eden has already said, our world is heading further and further into chaos. And just as Absalom and Satan manipulated their targets by appealing to their desires and offering shortcuts, friends, we need to recognise that we are tempted in the same way. We're tempted to accept truths and take shortcuts that lead us away from God's truth. The devil loves to prey on our frustrations, on our wounds, on our anger, giving us shortcuts to desires, uh, to, to justice, to comfort, to money, to sexual gratification. Consider those parts in your life where you're frustrated or wounded or angry. You see, it's these parts in our life that we are most vulnerable where we're tempted to take a shortcut past God's truth to get what we want. What should we do? What should we do when impressive people or Satan or the world pushes into our hearts to deceive us, to give us that shortcut to an alternative truth, to God's truth? Well, we need to remind ourselves that God stands by his word, which brings us to our second point. Um, have a look at verse 12 with me. Verse 12, David said to all the servants with him in Jerusalem, get up, we have to flee, or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly, or he will overtake us quickly, heap disaster on us, and strike the city with the edge of his sword." So what does it David do when he hears about the rebellion of Absalom and that the hearts of God's people are with him as the new king? Well, he flees. I don't know about you, but this frustrates me. Once again, David's inaction has led to ungodliness running wild in the kingdom. And David doesn't deal with it, it looks like. It looks like David just takes the, you know, jumps out the back door and hopes no one will see him. But as David leaves Jerusalem, he goes on a journey. Did you pick it up when we read chapter 15? He leaves Jerusalem. He goes across the Kidron Valley, over the Mount of Olives. And in chapter 16, he will rest at the Jordan River. And along the way, he has three encounters that show us what God is doing in this chapter. 
The first is Ittai the Gittite. He's a Philistine. He, he comes from the same city as Goliath. He has 600 men in his army and they helped David when David was being chased by King Saul. Have a look at verse 19. The king said to Ittai of Gath, why are you also going with us? Go back and stay with the new king since you're both a foreigner and an exile from your homeland. Did you see that David calls Absalom the new king? David is acknowledging this new reality, this new kingdom, that God has possibly passed the throne onto his son. And so he dismisses Ittai and his army. If David gave the Gittites refuge, then surely this new king will give the Gittites refuge again. But look at Ittai's response in verse 21. But in response, Ittai vowed to the king, as, as the Lord lives and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king is, wherever it means life or death, your servant will be there. Ittai knows the danger that Absalom has put himself in. He knows that who stands against God's king also stands against God. So as long as his Lord lives, that is God, and as long as God kings lives, that's David, Ittai will serve the king. This is a beautiful picture of loyalty. And God always uses unlikely candidates to strengthen his people. God is strengthening David by showing him the loyalty. And this will develop more as we encounter the second person, Zadok the priest. Now, I, I know what you're saying. Ah, Zadok, I remember him from five chapters ago. So Zadok is the high priest of David uh, throughout 2 Samuel. He's been serving in the temple and Zadok has got the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant. He's been following David and he's kind of like, right, David, we're here. We're ready. We've got the Ark. What do you want us to do? Have a look at verse 25. Then the king instructed Zadok, return the Ark of God to the city. If you find favour with the Lord, he will bring me back. Sorry, if I find favour with the Lord, he will bring me back and allow me to see both it and its dwelling place. However, if he should say, I do not delight in you, then here I am. He can do with me whatever he pleases. The ark of God represents the presence of God with his people. And God must be with his people in his city. But David doesn't presume that if he has the ark, he has favour with God. He knows that he can't own God. You can't fit God into a box. And so he sends the ark back to the city along with the priests to serve God. And in this deeply profound way, God, uh, David entrusts himself to God. You see, God has allowed Absalom's rebellion to unfold. And from all appearances, God has given the throne to Absalom. Yes, David has re repented of his sin. The sin has been put away, but the consequences of the sin remained. Remember the promise in chapter 12? The sword will never leave the house of David. Which means, in this ugly way, God is fulfilling his promises. And God is keeping his word. But the good news is that God's discipline of David has woken him up. 
It's cultivated in him an attitude to trust in the word of God and to absolutely surrender to God. And so when he says, if I find favor, he will bring me back. If not, then he will do whatever he pleases. David is giving us a bigger picture of God, that God is his refuge and strength because God will always stand by his word. And this is beautiful because, friends, this is faith in action. You know, we fall into the trap of thinking that faith is like this personal energy bar, like in a video game. And, you know, you go to church every week just to top up that energy bar so you can do the big things that God has called you to do. But faith is not an energy bar. David's energy bar of faith is not at its fullest here. Faith in the Old Testament is taking God at his word. It's saying, you have always stood by your word, God, so I will stand with you in this moment. And on David's darkest day, he remembers that God stands by his word and he stands with God and puts himself in God's hands. He says, whatever God wants to do with me, he will do with me because God is his refuge and strength. Finally, we see that God stands by his king. So if we jump back into chapter 15, God stands by his word and God stands by his king. As David continues this journey up the Mount of Olives, he receives a report in verse 31. Have a look. Then someone reported to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Lord, David pleaded, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Uh, if you follow the genealogies through the books, Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba and Uriah. Ring any bells? So um, I take it here that, you know, this is David's way of getting, sorry, this is Ahithophel's way of getting back at David. Uh, in chapter 16, it tells us that Ahithophel's counsel was so great it was like someone was consulting the word of God. But on David's darkest day, Ahithophel betrays David and goes and gives advice to Absalom, the new king. But when David reaches the summit of the Mount of Olives, he finds a loyal friend in Hushai. Have a look at verse 33. David said to him, that's Hushai, if you go away with me, You'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and tell Absalom, I will be your servant, your majesty. Previously, I was your father's servant, but now I'll be your servant. Then you can counteract Ahithophel's counsel for me. This here is the first step in David's plan to try and bring the throne back to him, to try and overthrow Absalom to send in Hushai as a spy and give bad counsel to counteract Ahithophel's. Now, if we were to jump forward to verse 17, we're not going to read it all, don't worry. The narrator, the narrator like a skilled film director, takes us from the top of the Mount of Olives um, back into the city of Jerusalem and into the courts of Absalom. Like a blockbuster movie, we get to see it all. 
And Absalom doesn't want his father, just want his father's throne. Absalom wants his father dead. So Absalom calls Ahithophel, the traitor, and Hushai, the spy, to give him advice on how to do this. Now, we don't have time to read it, but Ahithophel's plan is wise. It's immediate and effective. Go home today and read the full story. It's fantastic. You see, his plan keeps Absalom away from danger and allows Ahithophel to kill David himself. But Hushai's plan, it's foolish. Like, I'm no army commander, but it is really dumb, okay? It's slow. It allows David to escape. It places, Hush, uh, it places Absalom at the front of all the men, right, in danger's way, and puts him at the most risk. So with those two plans on the table, which one do you think Absalom will pick? If we go to the next slide. Uh, oh. Okay, I'll just tell you. So, uh, 2 Samuel 17, verse 14. Since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good advice be undermined in order to bring about Absalom's rule, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the advice of Hushai the Archite is better than Ahithophel's advice. David prayed in verse 31, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And it's the Lord who answers David's prayer. It's the Lord who frustrates and confuses the heart of Absalom. And it's by the sovereign hand of the Lord that Absalom follows the bad advice. We see, we've already seen this before in the Bible. We see it in Exodus when God hardens Pharaoh's hearts to accomplish his purposes. We see it in Joshua when God melts Rahab's heart to hide the spies and accomplish his purposes. And here again, God confuses the heart of Absalom so that he would follow this bad advice. See, up until this point, the story suggests that Prince Absalom's rebellion against his father has been successful and that David will be removed from his throne and God has failed to keep his promises. But it's completely the opposite. Friends, God is not silent. God is not absent. God is the sovereign Lord who stands by his king. And the rest of chapters 17 and 18, God does exactly that. So Hushai's plan is put into action. Ahithophel ends his life. Absalom goes to the front of the battlefield. And in this weird sense of irony, it's his long hair that gets him trapped in a forest, tangled in the trees, and then David's men kill him. And in chapter 19, God returns his anointed king to the throne. You see, on David's darkest day, he remembers that God stands by his word and God stands by his king so that he may stand on the promises of God. Friends, what a great comfort to know that God hears the prayers of his people and that on our darkest days we can cry out to him and he will send us help. Let's finish up. Um, We can't we can't read this chapter without being reminded of God, of King David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus. Born in David's line, Jesus is the eternal king that God promised to David. And a thousand years after David's journey, 
Jesus recounts his steps. See, Jesus the king left the same city, Jerusalem. Jesus the king left across the same Kidron Valley. Jesus walked up the same Mount of Olives. David takes this journey up the Mount of Olives because of his sin. And Jesus, the greater David, takes this journey up the Mount of Olives to the cross because of our sin, so that we may repent of our sin, be forgiven and welcomed into the kingdom of God. So for us, on the other side of the cross, 2 Samuel 15 is a foreshadowing of a greater king. Jesus doesn't choose the shortcut. He stands on the promises of God. He prays, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And he takes the long, hard road to glory. Friends, can I ask, are you prepared to take that road yourself? Are you prepared to entrust yourself to God, who stands by his word and stands by his promises? Are you prepared to find your security in God, the one who gives us eternal security? Remember my steel screen door? On the darkest night, I was so glad it gave me the security I needed. But where do you find security for your heart? See, if we're going to guard our hearts, we need to be honest with ourselves and honest with God. We need to be alert to those in this world that would lie to us, tempt us, affirm the desires of our sinful heart. We need to remember that God stands by his word and stands by his king so that we may stand on the promises of God and find security in that. So friends, where do you need to trust God's word more? Where do you need to let God set your agenda and to give up your own agenda? Where do you need to be willing to sacrifice pleasure or comfort so that you may be obedient to God? Where do you need to say, God, change me so that I can say with confidence, you can do with me whatever you please? Where do you need to grow so like Jesus you can pray, not my will, Father, but yours be done? Let's pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we thank you for David and the quiet confidence that you gave him because you're a faithful God who keeps his word, stands by his king and keeps his promises. So Heavenly Father, as we follow our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, give us that same confidence this week. Not so that we may be smarter sinners, but so that we may find our security in you alone, our salvation and our hope. In Jesus' name, amen.